Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. Melissa I. Strong is aptly named, and I think you'll agree once you've listened to some of her story. Along with being a writer and photographer, Melissa is a passionate and skilled rock climber, hospitality pro and restaurant owner operator in Estes Park, Colorado, the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. Hers is a journey that you would probably not find on any map. And even if you did, how many of us would have the strength of body, mind and soul to travel her path is a question that, well, I'll let you answer. Here's Melissa. Are you a climber? Are you a boulder? What is the, what are you? I guess you could say it's just like skiing or snowboarding. You're kind of doing the same things. It's a, it's a similar sport. There's just different types of the sport. I'm a climber and I'm a boulderer. I'm a climber who loves to go bouldering. Ah, and you would not be a boulderer who loves to go climbing. No, you could be a boulderer that loves to go climbing. You could do that too? Yeah, you just probably wouldn't be a rope climber that loves to go bouldering. However, people multi-mix all of the the facets of the sport there's people that do it all what's a guy like tommy caldwell do we just say he's an alien no or do we... yeah he's great at all of it um, yeah and you know and honestly to climb at tommy's level you really do need that power that bouldering gives you to basically get through the crux of the problems you know so they do track climbers can do a lot of climbing and get to the real hard bit and that real hard bit is similar to bouldering so they have a lot more endurance than boulders have. And then bouldering helps fill in that power. Completely simpatico. There was a thing in the Colorado this morning, Melissa, that a woman fell to her death at the ascent climbing gym here, 40 feet. Oh, wow. I didn't hear that. That's horrible. They wrote uh, no foul play as if there would be foul play. But it seems like she was not properly clipped into her belay line. Yeah, that happens. I, I know people that have, have fallen that far, if not further, outside and survived. So that is truly tragic. The way you just said outside, you sounded Canadian. 
outside. I've got this really strange thing that goes on. I grew up in Massachusetts with a wicked strong Boston accent. Wicked strong. That's legit right there. (laughs) And then I went to New Orleans for school and I think I somehow came out with a Canadian accent. There it is again. Came out. Yeah. What happened? (laughs) I don't know. Like I said, it's uh, it's that Massachusetts met New Orleans and this is what I'm left with. Interesting. It's unique. It's special. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> when did you leave Massachusetts for New Orleans? Is that what you said? Yes. Uh, honestly, I was 17 years old when I left. I was a young graduate of high school, uh, turning 18 in October. So just that kind of young kid for the grade there. I was ready to go experience life through college. Uh, my parents were very encouraging of, of me to stay close to home, but I I was applying to University of Hawaii if they'd let me. So they decided to put a restriction on my university choice, and that was a Jesuit school. And I'm like, well, look, I found one in New Orleans. Does that work for you all? And they said, uh, yeah. So um, that's how I wound up there and loved it for four years, but was happy to experience it. You know, knew a lot of locals as well, so it wasn't just that that party scene, it was a real local experience, but I was happy to leave. The heat and the humidity and the cockroaches are really big. They're big. Try Texas if you want big bugs. Extraordinary. Everybody who's moving to Austin and thinks it's the most awesome city on the face of the planet, especially the Californians, wait till the summer comes, kids. (laughs) Just wait. And the bugs. Those Teslas will be turning around very quickly and heading back, I think. Were you climbing early on in Massachusetts, Melissa? Was this something that was an early sport and passion for you? Uh, Absolutely no, not at all. I thought climbing really just wasn't on the radar back then for me. I grew up close to the city. I went to an extremely small private Catholic girls' school, so I graduated with a class of 27 girls, and all we had was a softball team. And to be honest, it broke my heart in the seventh grade. I tried out and I didn't make the softball team. I wasn't really athletically driven and climbing was definitely not on the radar. Started climbing after I lived in Estes Park quite a few years. I still, it still took me time to, to get there. So mom and dad, uh, outdoors people or no? We were skiers and beachgoers. So we'd go skiing in New Hampshire and Waterville Valley in the winters. And then in the summers, we'd go down to Nantasket Beach, and that's where mom and the kids would spend the summers, and dad would commute back and forth to work. Sounds kind of idyllic. It's awesome. So you get to, why why Estes? What what called you to the mountains? At that point, the, um, the guy I was with and I decided we were going to live. We dated all, he was a local New Orleans. We dated all throughout college. In fact, there was a little 10-month um, of marriage and divorce there as well. But we uh-huh. had just gotten married after I graduated. That was another maybe Catholic encouragement by both sides of the family that, you know, now you need to get married. You can't go live together. So we did that. And we wanted to live life in the mountains for one year before we started real life. He was from New Orleans. I was from Mass. His intention was to be a lawyer eventually, work with my dad, who is a lawyer. My intention was to get my master's and PhD and teach university level literature. Medieval lit was my specialty. And uh, we got in our cars and we checked out Asheville, went up to Whitefish, Montana, went over to Washington. He liked Whitefish. I really liked Bend. 
Oregon, so we weren't making any decisions. We knew some people in Colorado, so wound up circling back through Colorado. <laughs> Drove to Fort Collins, didn't like that back in Hey, hey, those are fighting words, man. Yeah, no What's offense. up with that? No offense. <laughs> None taken. It was, a, it was still a pretty small small horse town really i mean yeah, it, it I changed a lot decided well let's go over to check out the ski resorts and we went the scenic route and drove up through estes park and out towards the ski mountains and then decided uh no this isn't going to work for me at all uh you know it's just too expensive to live in the ski towns and so he said let's flip a coin heads we go back to massachusetts tails we go to new orleans and i said no i'm not doing either one of those things Let's just go to that little Estes Park town that seemed affordable and not too remote. So <laughs> that's how I wound up in Estes. Eventually, um, he did go back to New Orleans not too long after. I just started working and living in Estes Park and meeting climbers along the way and thinking basically they were totally crazy. I saw that you were the manager of the... Oh, Dunraven restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. For 17 years? Yeah, you know, once I started working in restaurants up here, I realized it was a great life and I could make money and I enjoyed it. Somewhere along the line in between there, I started rock climbing. It also suited the rock climbing schedule. You know, you could climb all day and then work at night. So I stuck with restaurants and gave up that PhD dream. I, rock climbing was a big part of that too because, you know, why do you want to go and get a PhD in medieval literature and maybe be stuck somewhere you don't want to be because that's the only place you can find a job. Right. The restaurants just suited me and the lifestyle and great crew of people. We were, it was family owned and, you know, we were all a family. And I bet. It was just, uh, it was a great place to work. So I did it for years and got the bug of doing my own thing, you know, just wanting to bring different food to Estes Park quality wise, sustainability wise. I felt like Estes was ready for something different and started to go off on my own and look for my, my, what was going to be my place. When did you become serious as a climber? Because you were, you were a sponsored climber, still are a sponsored climber, Melissa? Um, yeah. Some, you know, even though I'm, I'm old and, and things have changed, uh, some companies have definitely st stuck with me and, and my, my husband, I, I did get remarried, um, free crash pads from organic climbing, um, kilter wall, helps us out and got us a home wall, you know, helped out with our home wall set up. And uh, we still get chalk from Friction Labs. You know, over the years, it was different companies probably pitched in for travel money and stuff like that. Uh, and that all happened just as time went on. You know, you, you, you start something, you love something, and then you see that you're excelling at something. Um, and my husband and I met climbing and uh, we were, you know, just having a great time climbing couple. Were you just naturally good at it? Did it just come very easily to you or did you have to work at it? It took a minute for sure. And I did have to work at it. I still am working at it. I still train to get stronger. Um, it's a it's a constant thing because of what we do and because of the, the nature of bouldering and that it's so powerful that it's something you're you're always working on. What's the best bouldering spot you've been to? That's a hard question because we've been all over. We've been to the Rocklands in South Africa. We've been to Fontainebleau, France. We've been to Switzerland, um, all, a bunch of different areas in Switzerland. 
And um, of course, there's our backyard, Rocky Mountain National Park, been to Australia. And we um, also love climbing in Texas, which sounds strange. Not a lot of people realize that top three bouldering destinations in the world, one of them happens to be in El Paso, Texas. No kidding. And not something that I knew. El Paso, nice and cool down there. Really <laughs> mild, mild temps. So that seems, seems like an ideal spot. It works great with our seasons. So we go down there and we get down there in the winter times. So when all of our little boulders are snowed over here, we have our, our desert oasis. So it's called Waco Tank State Historic Park. Waco Tank State? Yep, Historic Park. H-U-E-C-O. And it is guided access and limited because of the Native American artifacts and rock art that are all around there. It's super cool. There's, you know, paintings and mortar holes and you name it. And uh, it's protected, which is uh, awesome because if not, it was getting abused. And we d we have had a guiding concession there for since 2005. So we help um, gain and get access. How many acres is this? Waco, I, I think, now this is, this is a Good question. I think it's 868. Did I just ask a good question? You asked just a very now? good question. Okay. It took me about almost 20 minutes to get a first good question. <laughs> oh, no. all right. They're okay. all been good. I think it's 860. If, 800 I, if I'm remembering correctly, 860 acres and there's three mountains. They call them mountains. They're not what we consider mountains, but big hills of rock that are um, guided access only. And then there's a fourth one that you can self-guide, but you do need reservations. Is there some video of you guys bouldering down there? Lots of them on Vimeo. Lots of, it's mostly me with the camera and my husband, but um, there's probably a handful of me on there as well. Size-wise, how does that compare? You said you were in South Africa, you are in France. How does that compare? Is that large? Is that small? It's super small and and compared especially to South Africa and France, the, the two other top bouldering destinations. Those areas of, they're just spread out. The, the Rocklands in South Africa, it's its amazing. It's so beautiful. You just kind of hike up a hillside and as far as your eye can see is just these open plains with rocks all through them. Um, and France is a beautiful forest. It's really cool. Napoleon used to use it for his hunting grounds a town called Fontainebleau. There's no mountains around, so it's really crazy that all these sandstone boulders are out in the forest or sometimes in the middle of a sand field. But all three super magical, beautiful places to, to visit and climb. And geologically, what happened in, in Fontainebleau? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you have to be somewhat of a geologist yourself, Melissa, to decide to understand the terrain that you're you're looking at and that you're that you're experiencing and whether a boulder is even safe to climb if it's something that's going to just disintegrate in your hands you have to have some knowledge of that now well at this point you do you know what kind of rock you're climbing on like fountain blue is sandstone um i wish i knew more about why it was for for why the formations are there most of the signs were all in France, so there's my cop-out answer. We're uh -huh. all in French, so uh, I don't read French. I have but no I, idea. This says danger. You could I, die. Let's, let's could, go. I have no idea what it says. I should have some clue, though, of why those boulders are there. Um, down in Texas, it was all volcanic. Um, in Waco, H-U-E-C-O actually means like a depression or a hole in a rock, and that holds water. And that's why it's such a culturally sensitive place is because of water in the middle of the desert. Obviously, Native Americans and 
Anyone traveling through the desert found it as an oasis, water with shade. In Estes Park, we have nice up here. It's granite. It's like a granite conglomerate. In the Rocklands, too, there's there's different formations of rock. So you do have a clue of what you're climbing on. You have a clue of what rock type you like to climb on more than others. Every rock produces different shape holds and different feeling like on your on your skin you know some are sharper some are smoother some get more polished so there is a whole world of knowledge that can go along with it when you're bouldering you're not necessarily it's not necessarily about the height you can have a challenge or I think you guys call them problems uh, that you're just a few feet off the ground and it's a com- it's a complex problem or situation am I using the right terminology or even thinking correctly about this Totally. Yep. No, that's what we call them, boulder problems. And it is right off the ground. And it could be as high as, uh, or as short, I should say, as, you know, six feet or something, or as high as, if you we call them high balls, 20 feet or plus. Um, you know, Tommy's partner, Kevin Jorgensen there, used to love, he was kind of known for high balls. Uh, I always shied away from them. Because you could die if you fall from a high ball break something, die. I've had some good falls over the course of the years of climbing where I've fallen quite a ways or fallen down in a hole or a jumble of rocks. And the worst thing that's happened is a a fractured wrist. You know, you could do a lot more damage for sure. And no helmet, right? You're just, I mean, you're in shorts, climbing shoes, chalked hands, t-shirt, tank top, whatever, basically naked. Very little gear. Um, no helmet. No. Um, although my doctor asked me every year if I wear a helmet climbing and I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. Um, and, um, is, is, is he or she still your doctor? Cause I'd give up on you. Yeah, no, they're they? still my doctor. They're still your doctor. Amazing. Crash pads are a big part of the sport. So those are the foam things with backpack straps that people wear on their back. People, you see them in Rocky all the time. I see them. And that is a word, you know, as I'm panting up a trail, Somebody comes by me in in chacos and a, a you know a crash mat on their back and just beating it right up there, just leaving me in their dust. And that's half a workout right there, hauling that thing. It is they, themselves. They don't like they don't weigh that much, but you do have to carry your entire gear in them for the day. So shoes, water, food, extra clothing, and, th- and they're big. I mean, they're, they're big. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. And they're, they don't, you know, they don't carry as well as a regular backpack. When you are on these locations, Melissa, you and your husband are, are you you effectively camping there? I would, I would guess there, there's little to no services or support out where you are. No, where we go in Rocky. So we actually both volunteer with the climbing rangers at Rocky Mountain National Park. So we try to get out as much as possible. However, owning businesses gets in the way of that. So we Go out on day day trips. That's that's what we do. So you hike in and you climb and then you hike back out. And typically now we stop at the restaurant and get a burger. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that, that's roughing it right there. Yeah, right. We have gone in for overnight venues where we will, um, you know, you get a bivy permit through the park and you can camp out there throughout the night. We've developed bouldering, found good boulder fields, or a friend has found a good boulder field and said, hey, we really need to develop this. Are you seeing the beginning of high season happening already? Did you see it happen earlier because of COVID and, and the restrictions? What's the what's the situation in Estes right now? Uh, we're full swing. In fact, it's busier than it's ever been. March and April look like July. So I'm kind of curious to see what July is going to look like. And you have your staff still? We do. We were able to um, 
keep all of our staff going mostly throughout the pandemic. Different times where we're like, okay, maybe maybe it's time to go with the unemployment option, but then we were able to qualify for the PPP program. And honestly, for us, it worked great. It helped us keep people employed and it helped us continue to run a business. Were you ever concerned at any point or did you guys feel like we, we got this, we can do this? Super concerned. I mean, when, when you're shut down and doing only takeout and delivery for a good part of March, April, and most of all of May to a town of 9,000 people with 30 restaurants, and then think about those 9,000 people, two to 3,000 of them themselves were unemployed, so it wasn't like they were feeling comfortable eating out. You have a lot of competition, so it was it was very challenging during takeout and delivery, and it was very, uh, it, you know, very nerve-wracking, stressful, and, and touch and go, and, you know, are we going to make it? You know, luckily the restrictions lifted at the end of May, and in uh, April I was outpacing parking lots, you know, trying to plan for the future that you can't plan for because you have no idea, you know, when the restrictions are going to lift or if they're going to lift and what they're going to look like. And so I'm out there in the parking lot and I'm like, we're going to put two 20 by 20 tents in. We're going to make a new dining room in our parking lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at, at times I thought I was uh, nuts and I'm sure my staff thought the same thing, but we rolled with it and made it work and, and we got through. Thank goodness. Knock on wood. It's awesome. And back of house, same team. Yep. Same team. I mean, some changes here and there, I think, you know, job market, commuting, whatnot. There's always in restaurants, as you probably know, there's always a turnover in staff. Um, but, um, a lot of the same team has stayed with us. Let's talk if we can a little bit about the, the jump from, the Dunraven to opening your own place. Cause that's a significant one. That's a, that's a big leap. It's one thing to be working for an organization, a family, a, an outfit and running a joint uh, as, even, as long as you did 17 years. It's, that's, that's impressive. And a whole nother thing to take that leap and say, okay, now everything's on my head. We live or die based on what my husband and I are doing, right? What you guys are doing. Did you see the opportunity? Were you looking at it for a while, Melissa? Were you thinking about it or did it just kind of come up and say, hey, we got it. We got to do this. No, I was thinking about it for a while. Just, um, you know, even though I love the Dunraven and what everyone, you know, the coworkers and what everyone was doing, I definitely, you know, wanted to spread my wings and give Estes Park something a little different than what it's seen so far. So I I'd say it had probably been, I mean, it had been years that, you know, and the Dunraven actually sold while I worked there. And I did not, I wasn't at the right point in my life to, to take that on and purchase that. And it's funny because I think I felt like regret for that at some point, but then, you know, certain missed opportunities lead to other things that in the end to me, you know, was for me was better something that was always on the plate and in the back of my head. And then as, you know, different opportunities were missed or not the right time, then it was the right time. And I started looking around for, um, for spaces. Where would I go? Your husband was on board with this from the get go. Um, he owns a tree service. Um, so he has his own business he does in town, but he was supportive of me from the get go for sure. 
Uh, I haven't made them come in and bus tables yet. We'll see what happens tonight as my phone keeps buzzing with people who can't come in. <laughs> How many years now have you had it? This is our third year. So COVID was our third year and it will be four years coming up this October. A walk in the park from the beginning? Easy, peasy, lemon squeezy? <laughs> uh, no, super challenging, you know. We gutted an old restaurant down to the studs and built it back up again. So that in and itself was challenging. I had a severe electric accident opening the restaurant, trying to do designs on table legs um, where I was hospitalized for a month and a half. And right. Can we, can, we, can we talk about that for sure, a, yeah. a, a minute or seven? Or yeah. because that... One of my sponsors was Adidas and um, they sent me to the, uh, the writer's clinic with Rock and Ice. And uh, I went in and I said, I'm, I'm writing a book. And they said, well, no, you're really here to write an article. And I'm like, no, but I'm writing a book. And they're like, honestly, if you write the article, it will help you. And after working with them, I realized how correct they were. Things have to evolve and they have to start somewhere. And that's where I was able at that writer's clinic to um, work with some amazing uh, editors and writers and start getting finding a voice for my story. Are, are you comfortable talking about it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You and your, what's your husband's name? Adam. Adam. You and Adam buy the Sundeck. Is yes. that Sundeck? Okay. The Sundeck restaurant and the two of you do a, a gut renovation. We weren't doing this personally. We did hire a contract. It was get the old furniture and make it look like it was going to be hip and fit into the new look that we were giving to Bird and Jim. Okay, wait, hold on. I want to I want to back up. So you, you go into the sun. The sun deck was how old? I, it was ancient. Um, the man who owned it um, before Vic, I believe he was there for 56 years and he was born and raised there. His parents had um, worked or owned the property to some capacity. So I, I think the initial footprint of the building was the kitchen. And it was built in 1926, and it was a hamburger stand, and then it turned into Beaver Point General Store at some point, and different additions were put on at different years. So where the tables are along the windows, that was added in 1946, and the backside where the bathrooms are was added in the 70s, where our entrance is, the bar and lounge was added in the 80s. So it was a pretty big job and undertaking. Um, so, okay. So hold on. Well, as you walk in, it's beautifully cobbled together over the decades <laughs> and you and Adam look at each other and just go, yes. I mean, you just, yeah. no, not at all. No. It was, <laughs> it was, it, the, the location is amazing. And it was, yes, this, this, I, I can see it. I can see what it could be one day. I think I, you know, was so ready to have my own space that it was, it was easy to see the vision of what the future could be. I just don't think I really understood how much work was going to go in it at first. But then the more you walk around and you talk with architects, you, you understand that it has to be a lot of work. So we knew that this was a general contractor position, you know, new, it wasn't even winterized. There wasn't even a water main pulled into the building. So it was all new electricity, all new plumbing, all new windows, you name it. It all had to be done. The architect and the general contractor set me up with enough realistic ideas of how challenging it was going to be. Um, so I think, you know, I was able to take it in stride. You know, it was the delays that were challenging because you don't really want to open a restaurant in the off season in Estes. But um, 
one thing you learn going through construction is you only have so much control over things. And did you wind up opening in the off season? We wound up opening in pretty much going right into the off season. So we at least luckily got October in and then November is one of the more slow months in uh, Estes. So yep, we went right into the winter. And it doesn't come back around until for you, what, late spring? You start seeing some good action, some action in like March with spring break. But yeah, those to me were the old days of Estes. It's it's really changed with the growth of the front range. Um, we're really seeing those off seasons being built, which is a good thing. It's a great thing because you can't really build any more of the summer season. Yeah, this was traditionally you had to make your rent in, in you know, make your nut in a couple or three months, and that was it, right? Yep, yep. That was how it, it was historically for years, but now it's a new ball game. So you have a contractor, Melissa, but you and Adam wind up getting rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, and you're physically doing the work. Well, at least to just like what I was doing was the tables. You know, it came with all tables and chairs. Going in was such a huge construction project. You're trying to not spend more money and purchase new tables and chairs, things like that. So you have these old pine tables i think they were made down in the front range down in longmont or um uh actually i think they were in loveland they're just they're old antiques they're they're cool but we're not building a place that looks like a a log cabin we're trying to make it a little different and unique for estes and so the question was you know how can how can i get my hands dirty and help and how can i make these tables fit into this new hip environment we're creating he had this idea he said oh check this out on the internet it's called Lichtenberg Technique, and it's um, used Who Was this Adam or your architect? Yeah. Who had, no, this Adam. is Adam. Yeah. Adam. He knew okay. that I was – I mean, I was coming home, you know, with the, from the hardware store with different paint samples with wood burning pens. And so he knew I was trying to find something different to do to the tables to make them look different and cool. Right. And uh, so searching the internet like you do for ideas, he, that's what he came up with. And it really was cool. Um, you hook up – two live leads to the wood opposite ends and it makes this really cool pattern that looks like rivers on a map or something and you do it with a microwave transformer and we had just emptied out the sun deck so we had a shipping container filled with all of their old equipment including several microwaves i knew our restaurant doesn't even have a microwave in it so i knew we were going to just junk them so went in and got one of them out and he took the microwave transformer out and created this machine so I could do this burning technique. Now, Adam is adept at this kind of thing to disassemble a microwave and put together this device for you? Over the years, he's learned, a, you know, a bit here and there. And, uh, you know, like we ran our whole operation down in Texas off of solar, you know, and he's made a van that runs off of solar. So yeah, he's handy at stuff like that. He sets this thing up. You've got how many tabletops? Probably a 50, 60 tabletops or a joint like that. No, oh, sure. Yeah. There's, yeah. I, I never even counted, but um, I never got that far in the project, but there were a lot of tables and I was even contemplating on doing this on some of the uh, chair backs as well. Was this a budget buster for you and Adam? Did you guys stay on budget? Um, No, not at all. As far as opening the restaurant, especially with the, the the nature of the building and being so many old buildings connected to each other, that as you continued, as they continued to open, 
you know, up walls or holes. It was, oh, look, there's no. Oh, it's just paint holding the building together. Exactly. And termites. There's no footers. Like, there's no right. footers. Like, I'm like, well, it sounds important. Yeah, yeah. Footers sound important. And a roof. That's good, too. Okay. All right. Got it. So you had you had cost overruns, but again, you're, you, were, you were even keeled. I'm going to say you are, even though you say you aren't. So you're looking at this project. Adam sets you up with this microwave transformer and... What does day one look like for you as you're going to, you're, you're going to start this thing? Um, super cool, excited, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool technique and it's fun to do. So it was just like, all right, I think we found what we, we've got. So day one was just easy, enjoying the, the work and that was about it. What? You have all the tables, you're disassembling them, you have a workspace set up for you and you set up the Lichtenberg machine, you, you have to put the the contacts in just walk us through that um well you uh paint the wood with a baking soda and water solution and then you hook up the electric leads and it just depends there's a lot of different i'm sure there's different ways to make these machines um i've after the accident i've heard of different options but the way ours was working to turn it on and off you just plugged it into the wall so you would paint the baking soda and water, you would hook up the leads, and then you would plug it in. And then the electricity would take a little while to heat up, and then eventually, you know, you'd hear a humming noise, and you would start seeing these lines being burnt in the table, sometimes with a little flame kind of dancing on top. I looked at a couple of videos. It's it's very cool and looks like a lightning termite etching effect kind of deal. It's uh, almost like bark beetle, but not in... It's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Were you were you anxious about doing it for the first the the first one, or we we just pretty pretty calm and just d- going for it? No, I was anxious. I mean, he had warned me, and you could see how powerful it was. The electricity was, and right, we're talking how many volts running through this uh, thing? I don't. I mean, it's a two thousand volt microwave transformer, so it's producing a lot of energy, but it's yeah. plugged into you know, a wall. So you're, you're still, it's not like we rewired the house for it. Right. But you're taking 110 service into a transformer that's putting out minimum 2000 volts. Correct. That's, that's a lot of juice. Yeah. So, okay. So you do how many tables before things go wrong? Um, I mean, I did it for multiple days, so I would say a handful, at least maybe five or six. Okay, so you found a rhythm. You were you were finessing your workflow, doing your thing, all good, yeah. Yep, it felt good. I started to feel confident with it. Started to probably feel less afraid of the system, which was a mistake right there. This is day two or three now. I would say three or four. Okay, and you're in the restaurant or are you outside? Where are you working actually? We're at the house because the restaurant was a total construction site. So I, oh, got, you know, oh, got it. in the way there. So we okay. I was bringing, you know, groups of tables home at, you know, in hunks and, and then doing them. Um, so we were outside my house and uh, right in front of the garage. How far do you live from the restaurant? Right at the outskirts of Estes Park. And I would say like 10 minutes away from the restaurant. You're by yourself working at the house? Uh, my husband was inside, you know, doing something else. It was a Sunday afternoon. We had both climbed on the climbing wall in our garage. And, uh, you know, he was, it was, it was not late in the evening, but maybe like 630 in the evening. So I think he was settling into the night and I was, uh, said I was going to just try to 
get a couple more tables done after uh, our climbing session. And you go and do that first table? I didn't even do a table that day setting up for the day trying to see if everything was going to reach where I was working and plugged in the machine to see if the extension cord was going to reach because I was going to do this outside and not in the garage itself and when you're plugging in the machine Melissa are the uh, the, the the video that I saw was kind of like a uh, battery jumper cable alligator clamp kind of things that were on this guy was using nails or screws, different different types of contacts. What, were you already connected to the uh, piece of wood that you were going to work on? No, I hadn't been. So I was just kind of making sure everything was set up and ready to go and okay. had not connected the wood yet. So okay. I plugged the extension cord in. And right at that moment, I realized I had forgotten the baking soda and water. That was my mistake. I just somehow got completely distracted with that. And I dropped the extension cords, leaving it plugged in and went in the house to uh, mix the baking soda and water. Okay. So the unit is char. It's, it's energized. It's plugged in. Yep. Plugged in. The two contacts are where, where are they laying? On the ground, you know, just loose there. And there's no way to tell or see that they're they're live. So they're just laying on the laying on the floor, fully energized, two thousand volts coursing through this thing right now. You go in to mix up your solution. Yep. What happens next? I just walked outside, set the solution down, and picked up the leads to hook them to the wood. And then I was going. Then then the plan was to put the solution on the table, and obviously everything froze literally right there and then. Those leads look like what? Just like you said, two little alligator clips, like mini jumper cables. Mini jumper cables. Do you wear, were you wearing gloves or you picked them up barehanded? Barehanded. So you, 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 you put the solution down, Melissa, you pick these two things up and then lights out. What, what can you, and I don't want to push you because I read this and it's intense, but whatever you're comfortable sharing. Um, well, I immediately knew I made a mistake. So um, I felt tingling immediately in my hands. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, crap. This was exactly what Adam told me not to do. He had warned you, be careful about picking both of these up at the same time. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, absolutely. Whatever you do, Melissa, don't touch these when this machine is plugged in. I mean, he made that abundantly clear. There was, there was my mistake. So that was the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, wow, this is exactly what I'm not supposed to do. And what Adam told me, absolutely, whatever you do, don't do this. And my second thought was, can I drop them? Can I let go? Can I disconnect? And well, actually, my second thought was, can I scream? And I couldn't scream. Not sure. That could have been my second or third. Doesn't matter. But simultaneously, it was probably like, couldn't scream and I couldn't throw them down. So I, you, I mean, it's hard to imagine that you can't open or close your hand, that you can't use your vocal cords. You're just completely frozen because of the electricity that's starting to course through you. Then I thought, well, maybe I could fall down and one of them might get dislodged, but I couldn't even fall over. So literally just frozen there well, the electricity was coursing through my body, yet fully 
aware of what was happening. Okay, so you got these things and they're in your hands. You're fro- completely frozen. What happens next? Uh, everything just went dark. It was enough to kill me. As my doctor explained later, it was like a microwave and a hot dog. It starts cooking you from the inside out. Just everything went black. All of a sudden was in a beautiful forest and I could see this dappled light coming down into these ferns and it was just beautiful and I was struck by the beauty at first and then I turned my head and I saw this tunnel and it was this big dark tunnel looming there. I said to myself, is this really happening? And I answered and said, I think it is. Then I said to myself, well, if this is really happening, I want to get out of here. And if I could just get back to Adam, I could get to help. As soon as I made that decision, that was that. It was kind of like reverse tunnel effect and my eyes opened and I could see the gravel on my driveway, which allowed me to realize that I was alive. Were the contacts still in your hands at that point? You know, I don't think so. I think enough. That's another good question, but I think enough flesh. Second good question. Double the time. (laughs) Double double the time here. Okay. Uh, I think enough flesh had eroded away that I was I was not touching them anymore. And that's why, in my mind, I thought the electric chain had stopped. I didn't realize until later, and Adam didn't realize until later, the breaker on the house tripped, and that's why it stopped. At this point, are you able to now yell for help? Yes. So now I finally could use my voice, and that was the first thing I did was, was just scream as loud as I could. Adam, I realized that he didn't hear me. So somehow I was able to stand up and take five steps to the front door and yell into the front door his name. He was working, you said earlier, somewhere in the house. He came running out to you? Yeah, he just opened the door and not, of course, knowing the scene he was going to see at all. I think in, after he thought, you know, maybe there were some, you know, we have a lot of coyotes or mountain lions that, you know, maybe the dog was, something was happening with the dog and animals. Um, but I just held up my hands, said hospital now and kind of collapsed in his arms. And he probably didn't even need to, to see my hands because you could smell, smell what was yeah. going on. Yeah. yeah. In visualizing this extraordinary event, Melissa, and what for Adam to open the door and just that sensory overload, and then he's got to act fast. Yes, immediately. You know, I mean, all he did, he just picked me up and put me in his truck and started the car. It was, I think, adrenaline reaction on both of our parts that I was able to even get up scream for help and take those five steps. And he gets you over to the emergency room in that little hospital in Estes. Yes, exactly. We walk in, it was a a slow Sunday night in the spring, so no one was even there. And he's like, what do we do? And I'm like, hit the button, you know, to open the doors. And we just kept walking further into the hospital and I just encountered the first person and I said, can you please call me a helicopter? Because that's all I could think of was, you know, I knew this was an avenue to help, but I knew that our small little right, local you, hospital, you, you had to get to Denver, so you had to get to yeah. a burn center. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, and so, yeah. and amazing that you're this lucid still, Melissa. This shows how strong women are. See, this is amazing. <laughs> this is the thing. You guys are able to multitask this way, even 
<laughs> in these incredible circumstances and you're just you're just so task oriented right just helicopter hospital <laughs> helicopter just these I just I can see it and they're probably stunned they're looking at you do they quickly move into action or what happens they start moving one of the nurses said you know well we need to get you on a gurney only the doctor can call the helicopter and because I think I probably said well I really need a helicopter <laughs> you know she explained that the doctor could call the helicopter and it's like, okay, where's the doctor? And meanwhile, He's I was fishing. getting on the gurney. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure they just were overwhelmed by what they were seeing and, you know, trying to put the pieces together at the same time. But I think that's the first time I felt pain because I said, I asked if I could still be burning and I kind of gestured towards my side at that point, I didn't realize I had exit wounds because the electricity has to come out somewhere. Right. I was like being struck by lightning, right? Yes. Were they triaging you quickly and correctly? And is Adam helping to convey what happened? I, I know it's a, it's a lot happening at once. Yeah, they were. I mean, they <laughs> they asked me what had happened. And I just said, I electrocuted the shit out of myself. It's good. Cut to, you want to cut to the chase. That's good. That was, that's, that was, <laughs> just the facts, ma'am. That's good. That was, uh, that was all I could come up with. And, uh, you know, Adam was, I think they were talking more to me and Adam was kind of standing there. And then the doctor, it all happened very fast. Then the doctor came in and I was said, aha, I need a helicopter. <laughs> and he just turned around and picked up the phone and called the helicopter. Finally. And then came back and then they were asking me questions and, you know, did you fall down? And I said, yes, you know, I collapsed to the ground. So were they you know, cutting I, your clothes off at this point, Melissa? Were they looking for those other burns and wounds and injuries? For sure. Yeah. All at the same time, there were different hands cutting my clothes off, hooking up an IV. Okay. So they were, um, they were in motion and, the, and they fly you to Greeley is what I read. Yes, exactly. Why not MCR? Why Greeley? Um, well, Greeley has a... They have the burn unit? Exactly. Okay. They, that was just the first call. Like, you know, we, this is what we need. We need to get this girl to a burn unit. Uh, and M I'm just going to say MCR for clarification for everybody is medical center of the Rockies. It's the major regional medical center for, I, I'm going to say five states or so, I think. Right. And I, in the end, I still didn't wind up there. I wound up at UC health in Aurora. You know, I remember getting in the helicopter in the beginning of the ride and you know, at that point, I think they're they're just upping your IV to make you as comfortable as possible. So I was out like a light and remember getting off the helicopter, remember waking up in what um, they call a tub room. Oh, yeah. Oh, so hold on. Are they just hitting you with morphine right now to manage your pain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just injections yeah. in the IV. Like that's, to me, I don't know. I'm sure there was another medical reason to get the IV in me, but... It was right when I started to feel pain. Yeah. I didn't morphine for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked. I do remember waking up in the tub room, realizing that I was in Greeley, realizing I had a friend of mine that had survived an avalanche in 2013 and had severe frostbite. And I had visited her in Greeley at that same hospital. And she had told me about what the tub room was. So it's strange that I kind of knew exactly where I was and why I was there. Wow. And then um, went completely out again and then woke up in a room with with my husband. My sister-in-law and her son had driven up. Did Adam fly with you or no? He had to drive down. 
No, once I knew the helicopter was coming, um, he drove down. I, I basically said, you know, you you need, <laughs> I was still adrenaline filled and I'm like, you need to go home. I was actually really worried about the machine because at this point we, I thought the machine was still, still alive. Yeah. And, you know, we had a really old dog at the time and we had someone that was living over our garage and I was just afraid someone else could get hurt. And so I said, you know, you have to go home and make sure the machine is is off and, you know, get some clothes while you're at it and just head to Greeley because that, we knew that's where they were taking me. See, you're in charge the entire time. It's incredible. It's incredible that you're that lucid and able to articulate, okay, here's the next thing you need to do. And you're the injured one. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that you could think like that. It's amazing. Okay. So Adam's with you. You're in the tub room. And what happens in the tub room, Melissa? Do you remember uh, any of that? I don't. Not that first time. I mean, obviously I was in the tub room quite a bit from then on. Uh, but what they do in there is they, they were initially cleaning my wounds and wrapping them. And you had, you mentioned burns on your torso, on your side, anywhere else on your body other than your hands and your torso? They were on both sides of my torso, right underneath my breast and then on my shoulder. What category, what, what class of burn did you wind up having? You know, it's super funny you asked that because now I just went blank. Hold on, I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to keep tally. I have two good questions, one super funny one. So we're, no, it's, it's, it's not. Funny. <laughs> it's funny just because I can't answer that because to me, obviously it's a third degree burn, but it's beyond a third degree burn because my bones were sticking out of my skin in chard. So I'm not sure if there's a degree for that. That's what happened to your hands, your fingers. Is that what happened on your on your torso and beneath your breast? Same kind of thing. Was there bone exposed there? Luckily, not as as bone burning, um, because that was where the exits were. Where I think, you know, with the electricity coming in, was more powerful. At least with the damage that was left behind. You begin what I'm going to imagine are arduous and long treatments. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't, obviously, I guess not going through this experience before you have no idea what's, what's ahead of you. I don't think the doctors knew either. What I heard a lot in the beginning was we don't see people that survive electric burns this severe. So we don't have a lot of information, but the doctor in Greeley woke me up and said, I'd only have four fingers, my index fingers and my pinkies, and they couldn't save anything else, but they were going to transfer me. And there were no guarantees or hopes that they wanted to give me. But, you know, UC Health had a different realm of doctors, um, including plastic surgeons that could potentially help. And they had sent my pictures ahead. They said that, again, no one's very optimistic, but we're going to transfer you. Um, and I was just excited to be transferred to potentially see if there was going to be help somewhere. And then what happens? Then they transfer me and I wait in another room, you know, so by ambulance, they transferred me and got me into the burn unit and they put me into a room and I was waiting based to see a plastic surgeon who was in surgery. So you never know how long that's going to take. And after a few hours, um, he did show up, walked in, they had to unwrap me again. I still had both of my thumb tips in place. He said that they were going to pinprick my thumb tips, and if they bled, he would help me. 
because there was an artery on the back of the thumbs and what was gone was the inside of my thumbs. This is a big moment. Yes, huge moment. Um, is Adam people, is Adam with you for this or is it just oh, you? Oh yeah, and- right, right by my side. Okay. Um, I think some of his family was in the room as well. Wow, and, so uh, you, have a, you have an audience for this moment when the doctors, I mean, this is it, right? He's gonna say whether or not there's blood supply that's gonna allow you to heal. Yes. And, uh, so yeah, it was a big hold, hold the breath moment and, and what's going to happen. And he, you know, then asked the nurse for a needle and pricked both thumbs and little pools of blood came up on both thumbs. And it was to me such a relief. It was the best thing I ever could have asked for because it meant that someone was willing to try to help me. Did everybody just lose it in the room? I think uh, everyone just gave a huge sigh for sure. I was probably on too much morphine to cry or jump for joy, but um, you know, I, I, I still felt the impact of, of what those two little pools of blood meant. I know the story and I'm jumping for joy. So, <laughs> I mean, okay, so he, so he sees the blood and you probably you see in his face, okay, we, can, we got something to work with here, right? Yes, exactly. And he said, again, no guarantees, but because there's blood flow, we have something to work with. All right. And then what happens? Uh, Then it's basically not a lot because frostbite and electric burns are very similar and they have to wait for them to to declare themselves to see how much tissue is going to be dead or how much tissue will be able to be saved. So it was a little bit of a waiting game um, while the doctors planned what was going to happen. And, you know, the head of the burn unit said, you're not going to see much of me because you are now in plastic surgeries world. We will keep you in the burn unit so we have the tub room and we can continue to clean your wounds. Um, But plastic surgery was going to take over. And that was my doctor, Dr. Ignachuk, who's the one that... um, pricked uh, my thumbs those that day. And so he would come in um, on a regular basis and kind of see how things were progressing. And then he had this idea to inject me with, during a surgery, we, we did, he did schedule a few debridement surgeries where they went in and tried to clean up the tissue. But at the same time, instead of just trying to take dead tissue, for the life of me, I can't remember it, they injected me with this dye that they use uh, for heart patients so they can see where blood is actually flowing. Mm -hmm. Under a certain scan, it will illuminate where you have blood flow. That basically gave him a roadmap of what he could save. By seeing the the healthy vascular pattern, he knew, again, what he had to work with. Exactly. And how much time has elapsed at this point? Uh, Maybe just a week. You know, well, that's, I think, that's a lot to happen in a week, it seems to me. Oh, you know? it's a lot to happen in the week. But once you realize you're that messed up and you're in a hospital, time travels in different patterns. Oh, yeah, I think they did two debridement surgeries and then came up with a plan. I think it was about 10 to 10 days or so into my hospital stay. This is shocking for some people, but they what they did was bilateral flaps. So that doesn't sound shocking. But what that means is they sewed my thumbs into my opposing forearms and took a flap of skin from my forearms, sewing it into my thumbs. So I was like in the I dream of genie pose, yes. but sewed that way 
to introduce my thumbs to good blood flow. You knew that you were going under for that procedure. You came out of the procedure. How was that for you? It was at the same time, simultaneously when they did that, they finally did cut the dead bones off as well. So they cut the burnt exposed bones and they sewed my thumbs into my arms. And when I came out of that surgery, I was in pain that I've obviously never felt in my entire life. Mm. Um, so that was really the first thing when I woke up, you know, in the debridement ones, I think I woke up and said something like, do I still have my thumbs to my husband? Um, but this one, it was the nurse over me asking how much pain I was in. And all I could say was beyond 10. 40. Yeah. We've, yeah. we've gone past 11 here, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Full throttle. Yeah. Were they successful at managing that pain for you? They were. They were. Um, I think initially it was just such, you know, the anesthesia wore off and I woke up and yeah. it was, it's such a drastic impact on your body that uh, it took a minute, you know, for, for them to be able to communicate with me and vice versa to be able to manage that pain. You know, are you ever not in pain? No, you, you're still in pain, but that's it. They're managing it. Right. You can function. Although, I mean, I could, I was very intolerant to the opiates. Like they make me very nauseous. So they were also managing getting me not to get sick all the time. And they were able to get a balance so I could quote unquote function. Yeah. How long were you in the, as you said, the I dream of genie state? For three weeks. My doctor kind of tricked me. I don't think it was intentional, but, you know, initially I think he said, we'll do this for 10 days and then constantly being checked on. And he said, uh, let's, let's give it another four or five days. And then another visit was like, let's go the full three weeks. I'm like, what are you talking about? Full three weeks. <laughs> you never said three weeks. Yeah. If I could, but... if I could undo these thumb things, I'd, I'd hit you right now, <laughs> doc. If it wasn't for this thing like I am. So you go the full three weeks and then another procedure now to undo the I Dream of Genie setup. Right. And um, put skin grafts. Still, there was just exposed kind of raw material on the rest of the fingers and the palms. And it was detached and skin grafts. So they just used the material, my skin on my forearms that my thumb was sewn into, thumbs, to create, you know, the backside of the inside of my thumbs mm -hmm. that were gone. Right. They needed to do that with the rest of, you know, the palms and the rest of the fingers that were affected as well. How many more procedures beyond that did you need until you were in a space where you and your and your doctors were feeling like, OK, we're turning the corner here? Well, they were really happy with that one um, and the skin grafts all took. But it, it was nine procedures total to, to finish the job. Over Sorry. over how many months? Seven or eight months. You're in the hospital the entire time. No, luckily the rest of them were outpatient. Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, uh, Burden Gym is still under construction, right? Adam is managing that, I'm assuming. Uh, no one really was managing that. Everyone was managing, is Melissa going to make it? Uh -huh. You know, is she going to have fingers? Yeah. <laughs> and the contractor was, um, you know, working, I think, at a little slower pace because he was wondering the same thing. However... I could communicate. I could use one finger to do computer stuff and call people on the phone. And, you know, eventually the, the, the pain became manageable enough that I was working as much as I could, keeping the ball rolling. From home? 
from the hospital. So I was in the hospital for about a month and a half. So they separated, they did the skin graft surgery. And I think seven days after the skin graft surgery, I went home. So I was working in the hospital and from home. In the hospital, you're one finger dialing and saying, hey, fellas, pick up the pace. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like you don't really even miss a beat. You're doing it still. Are there follow-ups? I would imagine there would be. Oh, yeah. You know, once I got out of the hospital, it was, we need to see you once or twice a week. It was fear of infection. And there was still a lot more work to be done. You know, he had saved um, the nail bed on my left thumb that was very small and short. And he wanted to see if that was going to grow. And if it was growing, then it was another procedure. So there was another procedure that I did have to check back into the hospital for, for about six days. And um, it was because that nail did grow. He was able to get me more length on that thumb. And he was able to do a nerve, skin, and artery transplant and give me about another inch of a thumb, which was worth it. Are you in pain right now? You know, it never... It's super strange because certain fingers I can't feel, certain fingers I feel too much. There's, you know, nerve bundles that were left. It feels, I would say, uncomfortable all the time because it's just, you, it, it's, it's, it's like you're trapped in really tight gloves or something, <laughs> but, but it's your own skin. Mm. So it's, it's just, it's a general uncomfortable feeling, but the more you live, the more you get used to it. Did I also read that you were intent on climbing again and you actually did climb again? I did. Um, in fact, I was climbing in between surgeries, but just the last one, you know, so they had told me I could start, you know, grabbing climbing holds and doing pull-ups on the wall. Um, so the first climb I did was on our climbing wall and that was in October. And I still had one more surgery after that that and I had to get through. How was that, Melissa? How, how did that go? Uh, super painful. Uh, <laughs> it just, it's weird what, you know, you can get through, I guess. And it just meant the world to me that I could climb again. At, at one point, when someone tells you, you'll, okay, you got to reverse it. I'm not dead. Like that was the biggest thing that helped me get through everything was that I remembered the whole thing and I didn't die then you're told you only have four fingers and the whole time you just have no idea what your fate or what your outcome is going to be. And once you see, okay, I have, I have at least enough fingers to try to climb that it meant the world to me to try. Are you climbing to this day now or have you let that go? Nope. Still climbing and getting stronger. It's amazing how much uh, strength you lose and how quickly muscles atrophy, but I was able to get back to get through the pain and really back into climbing. And it, it's taken years. Um, honestly, it's, it's, it's not just a, okay, I'm going to climb again. It's, I'm going to put everything I have into this and get through the pain and you name it. And, uh, and it's also humbling to go from climbing really challenging boulders to Maybe one day I can just do the warm-ups. Um, but it meant enough to me that I was willing to accept that and push through. And Adam, how's he doing? He's doing great. <laughs> he was, I mean, I always, without him, uh, it, it would have, I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to have such 
a positive attitude without the support, you know, good support goes a long way. And I had Adam, I had my family, I had Estes Park community and great, great friends. And, uh, you know, it takes a village and it was, it took a lot of help. Three months, I couldn't use my hands. You're depending on a lot of people. Yes, you need the village and you need the family and you need the friends. You absolutely do. It, but it begins and ends with you. And it seems that your attitude has allowed what seems to me to be an extraordinary recovery. Well, I'm definitely, you know, happy I had what it takes to get through it. Um, and there weren't all, you know, it wasn't all like I'm going to get through it, you know, and I know it's going to be okay. There were down days and hard days and scary days. But I think I was just so grateful for being alive when I knew how close to death I came, that that gave me the will to push forward and having someone help me was amazing. You know, having a doctor that that was so caring on top of being so smart and talented, um, that it all added up, you know, to help give me this positive attitude that I will get through. Let's be honest about all this. Climbing is one thing, but being able to crush a busy dinner service is a whole nother deal. You're back in the restaurant business. You said at the top of the show, busier than ever. Are you in service? Are you in the operation? I am. It's it's surprising though. Like, you know, maybe you know this as well because you've you've you have your restaurant experience. You go from dreaming to own a restaurant to actually owning a restaurant. And the job that you dreamed would be yours looks very different than what it actually is. And there's a lot more to running the restaurant than being on the floor. I am super busy and, and seem like I'm working all the time. Um, but I do try to get in and be on the floor like three nights a week. Initially, that was super challenging and hard because I, when we opened, I was still in stitches. I still needed to get another surgery. I still needed to make sure everything was very clean you know, so I could do very little um, opposed to what I was used to being able to do and function in the restaurant. It's kind of like the bouldering, like you go from climbing really hard to climbing really easy. And it's like you go from kicking butt in a restaurant environment to, OK, well, I think I can do this and I think I can pick up this empty plate or empty glass and, you know, still getting coordination, your brain to understand what's happening with your hands as well. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, it took a minute. I still think I just have a different role, you know, so I've never been for like I used, I bartended for years. I think that would be challenging. I still drop stuff <laughs> a lot. So I probably wouldn't want myself as a bartender. Yeah. I can still get in there and run the floor for a service for sure. Uh, let me ask you one, one more thing. What was it like when you went back to the space where it all happened for that first time. You shared with us that first climb in your home climbing on your home climbing wall. What was it like to go back and and see that see that equipment? Go back to the scene of the crime, such that it was. Well, it's funny. A lot of people asked if it would be hard for me going home because that's where you know the accident happened, and I said, "Well, my house actually saved my life because it was the breaker that tripped." So I guess I just looked at it a different way. I love that. I love that. 
and there's there's poetry in that. When you saw the equipment, any kind of anything with it? I mean, was there a cinematic moment where you took it and just smashed it into the wall, or uh, or or did you, or were you thinking, man, there's still sixty tabletops that I could be doing here? What was there? Was there anything or nothing? Was it just you're moving on? Well, um, someone in the Estes Park community that we have that's wonderful, Dave, his name is, is, he's an artist, and he wrote me in the hospital and asked if he could finish the table legs for me. So that was done. I didn't need to worry about that. And um, my husband actually hid the machine. The moment did happen, but it was kind of like months later, and I was looking for something behind our climbing wall, and I encountered the machine. Oh. It definitely took me back. I didn't, you know, felt a little queasy and a little off and decided I wanted to uh, throw it away. And it took me a minute to even want to pick it up and touch it. Um, but that was that was the decision. You have that moment and then you did pick it up and take it to the trash? Yep. It took me a little bit. And of course, it was uh, emotional, but I threw it away. It obviously was all disconnected, by the way. Yeah. There were no wires that someone yeah, could yeah, find yeah, yeah. and rehook it. But yeah. Huh. Did you just put it in the in the trash at the end of the driveway or where did it go? Yeah. 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 The trash can. Yeah. How was that? Oh, it was emotional. It was hard. It was, like I said, very difficult to even want to touch it. I just felt like I just didn't want to see it ever again. And I don't think I regretted that. Like, oh, I wish I kept it for posterity. <laughs> right. Right. In the museum of Melissa Strong. Yeah, okay. exactly. And there it is, kids. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a good thing. Although I had read Melissa's incredible account of her experience, hearing it from her was a whole other level for me and I'm so appreciative of her ability to tell her story. You can read more about Melissa at her personal site, melissaistrong.com, where you'll find videos of her and her husband, Adam Bouldering. Adam will prove that Spider-Man is real. There are also candid pics of Melissa as she moved through the accident, and they're not for the faint of heart. You can find out more about Bird and Jim, Melissa's restaurant, at birdandjim.com. Thanks for hanging with Melissa and me. I hope you join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. If you enjoy No Bed of Roses, and I hope that you do, may I ask you consider sharing the link to this episode or any of our episodes with your friends and family. Help share the love. We'd certainly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe. And remember, you'll find No Bed of Roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.